0: Good morning, Village. It's good to see everybody. I got one high back. That's good. (laughs) Yeah, it's good good to be here worshiping. Thank you, worship team, for a wonderful morning of worship. Um, Just a a great set of songs. I hope that as you heard Psalm 103, you realize that most of the the songs actually had phrases from that psalm. Um, Almost every one did. They all tie into it and Um, Sometimes different sermon topics are harder to find songs for This one was like how do we narrow it down because so many of our songs are 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 from or reference things out of psalm 103 and we're going to do psalm 103 this week And we're going to do Psalms 104 next week and these are um, The two bless the lord o my soul psalms They're put together and tied with two other thanksgiving psalms to end the fourth book of psalms Remember psalms is divided up into five books These end the fourth volume. And so the psalmist and and the person um, bringing these psalms together felt it was vital to end by saying, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless the Lord. And so today we're going to explore this psalm. And my title for this morning is Slow and Abounding. Praise God. And you're going to see why when we get there. But let me start with just a statement. People don't get what they deserve sometimes, right? They, thank God. But sometimes it's annoying. The person in the express check lane in front of you with 50 items. And you're like, no, this doesn't work. Well, they're all the same kind. No, 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 this doesn't work. Or the guy in front of you or at Starbucks in line ordering the 10 skinny iced mochas with light ice and oat milk with caramel drizzle and half decaf and half espresso, shaken and not stirred. And you wait 30 minutes for that order to come through. The other day I was at, at a Starbucks. Maybe I shouldn't admit that. But um, going through a drive through And the person in front of me had these special drinks. They got them all. And then I see them go back. And then 10 minutes later, new drinks come out. I'm like, oh, oh. Some people don't get what they deserve. Sorry, I, I'm, I'm whining a little bit. Those of you that live around Disneyland, the guy turning left from the right turn lane every day... Um, but on a more serious note, sometimes we look around and people don't get what they deserve. People without integrity in business or in politics. But then on the other side, sometimes we're like, I don't get what I deserve. You know, I work harder than my co-workers and they got a bigger raise than me. Which we're not supposed to know anyway. But, but we get frustrated about these things. Or, or maybe you've worked all day keeping the kids alive and it's been successful in that. And you deserve coffee and pillows and Downton Abbey. And and the kids are still screaming and crying and needing help. Or maybe people don't show us respect when we try to do the right thing or appreciation. All kinds of things. So sometimes people don't get what they deserve. Sometimes we, we, we are on the positive side and we miss out on that. But sort of going back to Troy's comment... Think for a minute this morning, what would happen if we all really got what we deserved? I mean, just just think about this. If we really got what we deserve, praise God we don't get what we deserve. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. So let's just take those two statements out of Romans 3 and Romans 6, right there, if we've ever sinned, and everyone has, We deserve death. We deserve punishment. We deserve God's wrath. But we're here. And we're worshiping. And we have a secure hope of eternal life in Jesus Christ if we've placed our trust in Him. And so praise God we don't get what we deserve. And today this psalm is about that. As the psalmist is reflecting on getting what we deserve in sin and and how all this works out, he's reflecting that God's anger does not just wipe us out and we're gone the moment we sin. But His love and His mercy and His grace and His compassion flood over us. That is the heart of God for those that follow Him. And so slow and abounding, our God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Praise God. Praise God turn with me to Psalm 103 and we'll just go through this psalm. I'd love to sing it together. I thought of just doing like impromptu melody and singing and then no Uh, (laughs) we're not going to ruin it that way. We will study it and we'll study the words and then we'll come back and, and sing about God's mercy together. But Psalm 103 and thank you Phil for reading that during our worship time during our song time. It's a wonderful psalm reflecting on that God doesn't give us what we deserve, instead freely pours his love out on us. These two psalms, Psalm 103 and 104, Kidner calls, in the galaxy of the Psalter, these are the twin stars of the first magnitude. And I hope today as we study it, it'll just make us smile and make us praise God and and elicit that response because there's nothing else we can do. My summary of the psalm is every part of us is to long to bless, praise, and worship God because we remember his forgiveness of sins, his mercy, and his love. And so we start with verses 1 and 2, and this is the introduction, and it really sets the tone of what this psalm is talking about, what we are to be doing. And so point number one, every part of our being should long to praise God. Every part of our being should long, should, should crave praising God, should seek after that. Now, I know that that phrase on its own is not a challenge. I, no one's going to challenge the, the truth of that. Yeah, I know, Pastor. I, I know that we should be praising God. But I pray that after, this, after we study this psalm, we're like, what else can I do? And so let's start with this. Let's start with the command that every ounce of our being should long to praise God, Verses one and two: Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. And even these two verses are just loaded with things that will help us praise God, that will help us have a heart for worship. Right from the start, in these these two verses, we see three blessed commands. And when you see repeated commands in the Hebrew, it's always given in increasing in intensity. So it's like, bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And the psalmist is just bursting. He's been reflecting on these truths of what God has done. He's bursting out and and he can't help. In fact, there's going to be six bless the Lord's or bless Yahweh's in the psalm, beginning and the end. That is the the theme of this song, is to bless and praise the Lord. Now I know the word bless is, can can we can just gloss over that because it's a great Christianese word, right? I'm blessed. Hashtag blessed. You know, uh, and, and we'll bless you when you sneeze or whatever. So so bless the Lord. It's worth stopping for a moment and saying, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to bless the Lord? And and the word to bless is to lift someone up to praise. And in fact, one, one author said it really should, instead of bless, they, they prefer the translation praise because it's to speak well of someone, to, to speak compliments about someone, to kneel in worship of someone. So to quote one of, one of the scholars, to express words that show the appreciation, gratitude, respect, joint relationship, or goodwill of the speaker, thus promoting respect for the one being blessed. And so it's to consciously, with our expression, lift God up, to make Him big, to to improve His reputation, to compliment Him. That is what it means to bless the Lord. It doesn't mean that somehow we're going to bestow a blessing on God that He doesn't have right now. No, this is our response to His work of lifting Him high. You know, how do we bless We bless by singing. We bless by speaking of God, uh, of speaking well of him to others. When we express love and gratitude for all he is and all he does and any expression of those, those are all blessing the Lord. Think for a minute. A a lot of you have children. And um, I did until a while. No, they're gone. But um, you you all have children. Many of you have children. What, What does it take for you to feel like your children are blessing you? Obedience, right? Okay. How, how can your children bless you? I know some of you are saying, why didn't you do this when they were in here? <laughs> junior high and high school, or junior high you are, high school's gone. When, when, when I feel blessed by my kids, oftentimes it's how they speak of me. The respect that they speak of me with. The, the, the lifting up, hey dad, I really appreciated when you did that. Or sometimes it's the actions, when they, going back to what Joanne said, when I see them doing something that I've asked them to do, man, that, that, that warms my heart. Those are all ways that our kids bless us. Think about this, parents. There are things your kids can, can be a blessing, and there are ways your kids can be a curse in their sin. And other, but, but that helps us understand what it means to bless the Lord, to make Him big, to lift Him up. But then it's combined with, oh, my soul. And, and what the psalmist is doing here and in poetic language, he's, he's adding that there's a deepness to this. This isn't just lip service. This isn't just, oh, God is great. This is, oh, man, from my, from my inward being, I know God is great. I appreciate him, and there's gratitude. And so it's, it's this, this whole idea of the whole person. Later in verse 1, it says, and all that is within me my inmost being, some of your translations translate it to. And it's it's a very descriptive Hebrew word that we don't necessarily appreciate in English. It literally means entrails, your guts, your insides. And so it's saying from everything inside, even your colon, we praise God. And for them, it was a figure of speech to say the whole being, every part of me is to praise God everything longs and strains to praise God. Every thought, every choice, every ability, every desire, every affection, every part of my will, every plan I make are to have the goal of how do I bless the Lord on my soul? How do I praise God? And so we sang a, a song like Christ be magnified on the altar of my life. Every part of my life is to magnify the Lord. And that's what the psalmist is trying to, to, to get across to us in poetic language. I think he does a marvelous job. I think, I think it means so much more to say, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name, than for me to say in my point, every part of our being should long to praise God. It's much more beautiful in the psalm, but that's what it means. He's telling himself in this case to worship with his old, whole being. He's training himself to worship. Because worship ultimately is a discipline. It's a choice. And so we choose, how do I make everything I do an act of praise? How do I make everything I do an act that lifts and blesses the Lord? What attitudes and actions, proactive and reactive, do I have? So how I respond to situations in the grocery store, at work, or on the road... Bless the Lord or curses the Lord, makes him high or makes him low. Every, every action I choose to do can do that. And so really the, what I hope we grasp is that every ounce of our being is God-directed. God directed. And so then in the in the, the rest of these two verses, the end of verse one, he gives the content. Okay, what should this blessing include? And it can include more than this, but bless his holy name. And as you know from our study of the names of God, when we talk about God's name, it's His character and His nature. It's who He is. And so we should focus on His attributes, focus on His nature, and praise Him for that, who God is. And then I think verse 2 is the how, because I can sit here and, and stand here and say, praise the Lord with your inmost being, and we could try to muster up the strength to do that. But the psalmist gives us the how. And in verse 2, he says, Bless the Lord again, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. How do we develop a heart of praise? How do we have every ounce of our being God-focused? By remembering what he's done. By remembering what he's done for us and through us. And I'm not talking financial gain or health. By remembering forgiveness, by remembering grace by remembering mercy. And that's what the rest of the psalm is going to do, is going to outline, okay, what benefits should we remember? The benefit, word benefits here is an interesting word because it has the idea of paying someone back what they are deserved. And so in a whole psalm talking about we don't get what we deserve, but we get blessing, the psalmist is saying, but we should give God what he deserves, which is praise. And so it's, it's, it's these the benefits here are deeds that require response. You know, ever had that? I don't know whether this is true anymore. It was when when, um, I was perhaps a little younger. You get to Christmas time, and it's like, okay, who do I need to get a gift for? Did they get me a gift last year? Because it's always awkward when someone gets you a gift, and you're like, Merry Christmas. Here's a card. Um, and, And so, you know, we, we have this built-in thing in our culture that you, you try to reciprocate those acts of kindness. And I'm not saying one way or another whether we should or shouldn't. But, but sometimes we do that. Or maybe someone does something really special for us and we write them a thank you card. That is the kind of response of forgetting not all his benefits. His great mercy and love has been freely given to us if we just repent and follow him. And so what else can we do but worship? And this idea of forgetting not or remembering, we've talked about this through a number of our studies because it keeps coming up because we are forgetful people. We start to take for granted forgiveness and eternal life and what God has done. And that's when our worship struggles. And the more we can remember what God has done, the better our worship. In Deuteronomy, the children of Israel struggled with this. In verse 12, lest when you have eaten or are full, and he's talking about that God gives them the land and that they need to give thanks to him, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. And so the fear, here, the warning here is don't get all these benefits from God and say, oh, This is wonderful. Life is good. And forget that it's all because of Jesus. It's all because of God. If we don't have forgiveness, we have nothing. If we don't have salvation, we have nothing. And so we want to cultivate remembering. This is why we pray before meals. It's not just to get the family to be quiet. Works sometimes. Sometimes. It's to cultivate an attitude of gratitude to our Lord, to remember that all provision is from him. And so the psalmist starts in verse 1 and 2 that every ounce of our being should long to praise God, to praise him for his nature, his name, his character, and to remember God's work in our lives. In fact, if we struggle to worship, we struggle to remember what God has done or we haven't experienced what God has done. And so then the psalmist in the next section, and really the body of the psalm, so point number two is like most of the psalm, and that's okay, uh, talks about, okay, what are these benefits we're supposed to remember? And so point number two is praise God because of the undeserved great things He has done in our lives. And think about it for a minute. Have you experienced... Any great things in your life because of God's mercy and love? Yeah. Anyone forgiven? Anyone not dead? <laughs> Trick question, because their sins should. Yeah. If you're here, I'm hoping you. Few people are asleep, and no. Um, <laughs> we got to remember these great things, and so the psalmist starts to list them out, and he's going to go one after another. And I've tried to sort of group them a little bit. And the first one in verses three through five is he takes care of sin and all its damage. He takes care of sin and all its damage. And this one is huge. And as we read this, we're going to cover that he forgives, he heals, he redeems, he crowns, he satisfies, and he renews. In three verses, we get six things to remember, any one of which is worth blessing his holy name. And the psalmist just like, "You, you want to learn how to praise God did this, and God did this, and God did this, and God did this. And by the way, you didn't do any of it. You don't deserve it. So so let's explore this. Verse 3, who forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases. And so the very first thing the psalmist goes to when he says, don't forget what God has done, he says, he forgives all your sins. He forgives all your iniquities. And We're going to find out in the psalm that he's talking to those that follow him. He's talking to those that obey him, that have given their life to him. For us, we know this was fulfilled in Jesus. So those that follow Jesus, these promises apply to. And those that haven't chosen, if you're here and you haven't chosen to follow Jesus, this is what, what the offer is. This is what Jesus does. And so he says he forgives all your iniquity. He, the alternative to that, if we got what we deserve, like we've been saying, is to crush us because of our sin. That's what a holy, righteous God without love, mercy, and grace would have to do. But God is all of those things, praise God. And so He forgives, and then it says He heals all our diseases. And we can look at that and say, Well, I've gotten sick. Why does that and and we have to understand the, the, the context heals all our diseases? The word for diseases is illness or pain, both mental or physical. And so it it very much has the idea of illness from sin, pain from sin, from the fall. And so this is talking about when he heals of our diseases that he's restoring moral and spiritual life. Now certainly he heals as well physically, but not always, that's up to him and his, his sovereignty. But ultimately he heals from the stain of this Genesis 3 fallen world. And it's interesting because just just looking at the structure, this phrase is parallel to who forgives all your iniquity. And so it really looks like the psalmist has the effects of sin in mind. And, And so the first one, our sin, leads to a breach, right? A breach between us and God, a separation. And then that leads to damage, that leads to pain, the ongoing effects of sin, and that's what he heals in its diseases. And so Jesus handles both. He handles forgiveness for the initial sin, and he handles restoration for all the effects of sin. Praise God. But we have to go to him, and we have to follow him, and we have to be broken and repentant for that to happen. And so, so really you have a sequence here that I, I, I think is, is, is really important. The first is, are, are we sin? And our sin is a separation from God. It leads to a separation from God, right? In Isaiah 59.2, Isaiah says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And so whenever we sin, it puts a break in our relationship with God. Just as if we sin against each other, that puts a break in our relationship. When we sin, it puts a break in our relationship with God. In fact, the, the verse goes on to say, a separation between you and our, your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And so when we are living in sin, when we have unconfessed sin, what the word says is that God doesn't hear us. In fact, there is only one prayer God hears when we have unconfessed sin, and that's the prayer of, of repentance. A prayer of a contrite heart. Everything else is just bouncing off the ceiling and making no difference because we have separated ourselves from God. And so that's the sin. That sin then causes damage all over our lives, right? It's like holding a hand grenade, letting it go off and hoping there's no damage. No, there's shrapnel everywhere. And that's what happens when we have sin in our lives. It starts to damage everything. Proverbs 6, 27 to 28. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot clothes and his feet not be scorched? The the, the author of Proverbs is saying, no, silly. Sin affects everything. Sin causes damage. You can't hold it close and expect that only that sin is the problem. It will damage all kinds of things in your life. It will break relationships in your life. I, I can remember watching people step into sin and then all of a sudden, just everything breaks loose in their life. There's stories of this happening and this happening and, and broken relationships. And I can't believe this happened. And, and that's God removing his protection to try to get our hearts to repent. And so there's sin. There's the damage from sin. But, but God. And so the third part of that is repentance leads to God's forgiveness for the first and restoration of the second. And I spend some time on this because until we understand, until we remember the effects of our sin, we won't appreciate the beauty of God's grace. We won't appreciate the depth of His forgiveness. That a holy God can take that sin and the damage caused by that sin and restore it and bring us back into relationship with Him is amazing. And it is beautiful. And it should make us say, bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless His holy name. And so God gives forgiveness when we're contrite. When we're repentant, He restores. Jesus Himself said this in Luke 24. And He said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So it says Jesus came and died to pay for that sin. And then repentance leads to forgiveness. And the psalmist is going to go on with this and just talk about how deep that is, how amazing that is. This is a Psalm of David if you look at the header. And David knew what he was talking about. In Psalm 51 after the situation of Bathsheba and he's confronted by Nathan and he repents and he's just broken before God, willing to do anything. He says the sacrifices of, of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And he stopped fighting God. He admitted to everything. And humbled himself. And he said, God doesn't despise that. In fact, God restores. And so we praise God because of the undeserved great things. And the first one of those is his forgiveness and his healing. And then the psalmist goes on in verse 4. That was all verse 3. In verse 4, he'll start to cycle through these things. But in in 4 and 5, he's continuing the sequence that if there's forgiveness of sins then ultimately that's part of salvation, right? That's part of saving us from the pit of hell and from death. And so he says, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. And the pit there represents death and Sheol and the underworld. It represented all of that. And the psalmist here, looking forward to Christ, not knowing what that meant, said, God redeems our life from the pit. The word for redeem was a common practice for them. It referred to a kinsman or relative paying the price to get a relative out of trouble, to get a relative out of prison, to get a relative out of debt or or, um, debtor's prison or out of slavery. And so they would pay a price and they would buy the freedom of their relative. So we're like, well, that's what Jesus did. Yeah, we know that now, but for them, that was a common practice. And so it's a beautiful picture of what Jesus did for us because on the cross, he paid the price that we should have paid, that we can't pay. And he redeemed us to freedom with him. And so the psalmist here is thinking of resurrection to eternal life. He's thinking of of God's redemption. And somehow that's going to happen. For him, he saw the sacrificial system looking forward to something. And we know that through the the life and death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, that was fulfilled. And so he's contemplating what benefits make me praise? Forgiveness of all my sins. Not just one or two, all my sins. Healing all the damage from them. Healing completely redeeming my my very life from the pit that I deserve to lose. And then the positive side of that crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. Bestows honor on those. Crowns was a victor thing. It was an honor thing. And, And God is bestowing that on us. And the word for steadfast love, you've heard me talk about it. It's a lot in Psalms, as has said. And it's this covenant love. Um, Like I said, close to agape in, in the Greek, in the New Testament. But basically it's God saying, I am covenanting to love you. And the only basis for that covenant is my character and ability to carry it out. And so nothing can stop it because no one's greater than God. And it's God saying, I am committed to you no matter what. Do we need to hear that today? that God is committed to us no matter what. And in this context, no matter what sin, no matter what weakness, no matter what mistake, if we come to Him and repent, His steadfast love covers that and then dictates what His actions will be. And so He crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. And then verse 5 goes on. Okay, so we have sin and then forgiveness of sin, healing, salvation from the final effects of sin, And then feeling the the positive side of God's love and mercy. And then verse five, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like eagles. And the words I would write there is satisfies and renews. See, sin is always thirsting after something. Thirsting to have some act, some thought, some desire satisfy what we think is a need in us. But sin always lets us down. Sin always falls short. Whether it's, whether it's anger, vengeance, whether it's, it's desires or lust, it always falls short because we are made worshipers and only God can satisfy. And so the promise here is not only do I deal with sin and the effects of sin, but then I satisfy you so you don't need to sin if, if you follow me. And then I renew you. Out of all this, I renew you like the eagles. Like we see in Isaiah 40:31. They who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Hopefully it stirs something in you to just think for a minute. You're forgiven. You're 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 healed. The damage is taken care of. You're redeemed. You're flooded with with a love that is covenant love that we can't even understand, with mercy that we can't even comprehend. And then you're completely satisfied and then restored to to strength and to energy. Praise God. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Then we get to verse six and seven and the psalmist goes on to say some other things to remember that God has done. And he says in verse six and seven, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He may know in his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel and, and let her be there as God will ultimately make right things right in the world. God will ultimately have justice. We look around, we're like, I don't see it in this situation. Ultimately, God wins, right? And, and we're constantly reminded of this as we deal with a fallen world and try to, to, to figure that out in light of God's sovereignty is ultimately he will make things right. So the Lord works righteousness or straight ways, right ways, and justice for all who are oppressed. And then for the next few verses, the psalmist is going to refer to, to the Exodus. That's what verse 7 is talking about. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel, of people that were in slavery, of people that were abused, that for 300 years didn't know where God was. And God hadn't forgotten. And he was going to work justice. And he was going to work righteousness. And so he cares about the oppressed. Village, when we feel oppressed, he cares. He knows. And he'll take care of it but we have to trust Him. We have to come to Him. Maybe it's not going to be in our timing. Maybe it's not even going to be our way. Sometimes we won't even see it now, but we'll see it in eternity. And so as God brought His people out of Egypt and brought them out of slavery, He was showing His salvation and His justice and His righteousness to a people that didn't deserve it, a people that kept forgetting what He had done, a stiff-necked people sometimes described, but a people that his covenant love showed righteousness and justice to. God will ultimately make things right in the world. We can count on that. Take that to the bank. And then verses 8 through 14, the largest section, and just a a, a beautiful, um, powerful section. With abounding steadfast love God's mercy and grace cover our sin and weaknesses. With abounding steadfast love, God's mercy and grace cover our sin and weaknesses. And and really this section is expanding on what we talked about in three through five, which is why I spent a little bit of time making sure we really understood the depth of that. Because now the psalmist is just gonna sort of revel in that and, and revisit God's forgiveness and revisit God's love and revisit God's mercy and enjoy it as he lifts God high and praises him. And so we get to verse 8. And and verse 8 is actually quoting Exodus 34. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, praise God, nor repay us according to our iniquities. And it's really interesting because verse 8, like I said, quotes Exodus 34.6. Here's the setting. The Exodus has happened. They're at Mount Sinai. Moses goes up to get the Ten Commandments. He comes down. And what have the people done? They, they made a cow and called it Yahweh. Okay? This is, this is evil. This is idolatry. And, and Moses is angry, God is angry, and the people are confronted, and, and to some degree repent. We know Moses repents for the people, and they grind up the, the, the cow, and they, they drink it. Um, and so there is repentance and turning, and this verse comes after that. After a situation where if it were you and I, if we were God, praise God we're not, we probably would have been like, that's no longer my people. And in fact, they're no longer people. Right? I mean, if someone has that kind of offense, wouldn't we be tempted to do that? Praise God we're not God. Because God looked at that and looked at the repentance and looked at his covenant steadfast love and said, I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up on them. My my servant Moses is repenting for the people. They're turning and at, at least trying to repent. And this verse happens when Moses goes back up and talks to God and God renews the covenant. This is a verse where God is forgiving his people and not wiping them out. And so he quotes, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, which means sort of to to file a grievance against or keeping a dispute, scold or rebuke, nor will he keep his anger forever. Now, Now, in the passage out of Exodus 34, it says the guilty will still pay. God doesn't just give a free pass, but for those that come to him, he won't hold a grudge is what this verse means. He won't stay angry if we repent and come with a broken and contrite spirit. And oh, did David know this? David experienced beautiful restoration as a man after God's own heart. And he writes this because he's experienced forgiveness to the full. And the children of Israel experienced the same thing as God let go of his anger, let go of his grievance, which is what forgiveness means because of that repentance. In verse 10, he doesn't give us what we deserve. He doesn't slam us right away. And I think this is a call to see the seriousness of our sin because we see the greatness of his grace Then, That our sin does anger him. Our, our sin does require a righteous response. But because of the work of Jesus Christ, God paid for it. And he allow, it allows him to forgive in this way. Andrew Murray said this as he talks about the mercy of God that allows forgiveness. And I really appreciate this. The omniscience of God is a wonder. The omnipotence of God is a wonder. God's spotless holiness is a wonder. None of these things we can understand. But the greatest wonder of all is the mercy of God. As we're going to sing in a minute, our sins, they are many. His mercy is is more stop and think about that are we slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy how incredible is it that god can forgive and the way he forgave was that personal loss of his son on the cross bearing our sins on his body i have nothing to repair my repay my savior The only thing I can do is say, bless the Lord, O my soul. This is what viewing repentance and forgiveness should lead us to. If there is repentance, God forgives. I I think there's great, great application to us too. Is that how we are with people? You know, as, as Jesus told Peter, as much as I've forgiven you, forgive other people. Or do we hold on to grudges? Do we hold on to things and refuse to give restoration and, re- and refuse to restore those relationships? Our natural tendency is to hold on to anger. We want justice, we want revenge. They have to pay. That car that just cut me off and wove through traffic has to learn a lesson. And God has put me at this place and this time to teach them that lesson. No, I'm kidding. That's what's in our hearts so many times, but that's not the heart of God. Rather than see, Estes wrote this, rather than seething in anger and resentment, as humans are prone to do, the Lord chooses to give freely of His grace." Another author said, God doesn't hold those those grudges. God infinitely wronged, uh, hear this, infinitely wronged, not only tempers wrath, but tempers justice, though at what cost to himself only the New Testament would reveal. Enjoy God's forgiveness. Revel in the depth and magnitude of that. And then let's do the same for each other. Let's do the same. And then 11 through 14, they're still part of this section. But now he just is pounding in to see the depth, to see the greatness of of that mercy and that forgiveness. And he talks about three things, his love, his forgiveness, and his compassion. And in verse 11, he gives a description of, of his love. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. And again, this is poetry. He's not suggesting to get an electronic measuring device and measure how high the heavens actually are from the earth and say now we've quantified God's love. No, what he's saying is we can't quantify it. This is such a huge, huge, immense quantity that we cannot quantify God's love and how much he loves us and how steadfast it is no matter what we do for those who fear him. They qualify. God loves you and is committed to you more than any measurement that we know of can quantify. Is that cool? That's amazing. That is, that, that is incredible. And then verse 12, he, goes, he does the same thing, but with forgiveness. As far as the east is from the west, and basically that's really far, um, one author said, well, actually, technically you can go east forever and you can go west forever, and so the distance between the two is actually infinite. I'm like, "Eh, no, no, they meet sometimes, I don't know. Um, Maybe he was a flat earther, I don't know. But um, (laughs) just kidding. The point of the psalmist is, as far apart as we can picture in, in our earthly existence, that's how far he removes our transgressions from us. When we repent and come to God, there is forgiveness fully, freely, and forever. And God takes those sins and He puts them as far from us as possible. And so when Satan tries to say you should still be guilty for that, and when Satan tries to hold that over for us, it's like, nope. God has put that sin as far as possible away from me. This refers to the idea that God will not hold a sin that he has forgiven against us ever. And, and in all these things, I kept thinking of humans and I'm like, we are so bad at this. We don't forgive and forget. Forget meaning to not hold it against someone. We are so bad at this. But our God is so good at this. And so the psalmist is is. By comparison saying, look how great God is. And then he moves to a description of compassion. So we have his love, his forgiveness, and removal of that guilt, his compassion. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And you picture this compassionate dad who still disciplines, but is discipling. And he has a love and an eye for repentance even as he disciplines his children because he's compassionate and loves them. Our God who is completely other, completely above us, completely transcendent is with us as a compassionate father who cares deeper than we could ever know. And then verse 14, which will lead into the next, it's a transition verse into the next section. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. I find great hope in that verse. I find comfort in that verse because sometimes my my brain can say, well, God doesn't know what I'm thinking sometimes. (laughs) God doesn't know how bad I've sinned sometimes. God doesn't know the anger I've held sometimes. Oh, of course he does. This verse says, He knows our weaknesses. He knows our frailty. The wording there, He knows our frame, is that of a potter. And the potter knows the clay, and the potter knows his creation more than anyone else. He knows every part of it. He created it. And so this says, For He knows our frames. He remembers that we're dust. That doesn't excuse our sin, but He understands our weaknesses. He knows every sin we have committed or ever will commit. And He still has said He's willing to forgive it if we come to Him. He knows every flaw, every wart, every zit. And He still loves us. And He knows this intimately through the incarnation. And He still loves us. And so this section is remembering the depth of God's love and His mercy. You know, to put this into practice, I I recommend keeping a journal or keeping some way of times you've seen God's love and mercy in your life that you haven't deserved it. Whether that's forgiveness, whether that's restoration uh, in amazing ways. How have you seen God work? I I, I have a computer file that sometimes I I, I add this to, but I I really like the idea of like writing on a rock and making like a rock garden or something. Just to remind us, and, and the, the, don't have to do those two things, but just ideas, how can we remember God's love and forgiveness like the psalmist is doing? Because I guarantee when you remember and see the depth of it, your response will be, bless the Lord, oh my soul. 15 through 18, he continues this theme, God's love for us far outlives us. And, and he's, I can picture the psalmist, when he talks about us being dust, thinking about our frailty, and then thinking, but our frailty is nothing compared to an omnipotent God who never stops loving us. And so he says, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like the flower of the field and then the wind passes over it and it's gone and its place knows it no more. And he knows if if you saw even last week, some of the cave Psalms, he's out there in the wilderness. He's out there in, in just brutal desert brutal wilderness they call it and the winds would come up and nothing living really survives the winds you can have a cute little flower and then the wind comes and it's like a dead corpse of a flower gone that's what the psalmist says our life is like we we come up we flourish the winds come we're gone its place knows it no more but in verse 17 the steadfast love of the lord by the way have you been noticing how many times the psalm mentions the steadfast love of the lord over and over and over. Almost every point except one of what to remember comes back to the steadfast love of the Lord. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children. And so the psalmist is saying, even though your life's short, even though, you're weak, even though even though you may feel like it's fleeting and failing, God's love outlives that. You will never live long enough to outlive God's love. You will never do anything to, to run from God's love. And that's the theme that keeps coming up. I know I sound like I'm repeating myself this morning. It's because David did. Because he's trying to pound it into us. God loves you. He gives us mercy and grace. He forgives if you just follow him. And so he says that on those who fear him. Verse 18, to those who keep his covenant, And remember to do his commandments. And then we get to the last section. And this is the the conclusion. And I I just love what this does. Everything under Yahweh's rule should bless him, is point number three. And so we have the initial call, bless the Lord, O my soul. and, And from my inmost being, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and remember his benefits and then we come to the end. And, and this, is, this is an envelope and an inclusio, we would call it, where he's ending with the same thought he starts with. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Yahweh is over all things. And so verse 20, Bless the Lord, O you as angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the work of the Lord. And so he's, he's like bursting out with God, what God has done and his love and forgiveness. He's like, everyone join in. It's not just me. Everyone join in. Let's start with the angels. They get to see it. Have them join in. And then verse 21, bless the Lord all his hosts or his heavenly armies, his ministers who do his will. So let's have them join in. In fact, in verse 22, bless the Lord all his works in all places of his dominion. All means all. That's everybody. Everything. Bless the Lord because he is loving and gracious and merciful. And praise God, he does not give us what we deserve. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. And so I want to stand right now. Worship team, if you can come up. And I want to bless the Lord from our souls, with our whole selves as we sing about his mercy, his mercy covering our sin. And just spend some time, if you just want to be quiet and listen to the song, you can. If you want to sing, you can. But reflect on how God gives us mercy and keeps us from giving us, give, keeps from giving us what we deserve. And the depth of our sin has been wiped away clean by the work of Jesus Christ. And then we'll bless the Lord from our souls. Saying that truth, our sins, they are many and they deserve death. They deserve punishment, but your mercy is more. And as we sang, you paid for that on the cross, a price we don't understand. But Lord, we give ourselves to you. I pray for our church. I pray for this church family, Lord, my church family. Lord, I I pray that if there is sin that we have not confessed, that we would be broken and contrite before you and confess it and experience the beautiful forgiveness and cleansing and healing you have to offer. Lord, I pray that if there's any here that have never experienced that, that life just stinks because we're dead in our sins, and our trespasses. Lord, I pray that they would come to you, that they would say this morning, Lord, I give you my life. I repent of my sins. I accept the payment of Jesus Christ and I give my life to Jesus to follow him. Lord, I pray that we would experience the depth of your mercy, that we would comprehend it. Lord, I know we can't fully comprehend it, but oh, impress that on us this week, that our lives become lives of blessing the Lord with all ourselves. Thank you, God, for your benefits. We don't deserve them, but oh, Lord, we praise you for them. In your name. Amen.